Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, May 11th through Tuesday the 16th feature Ricardo Muti directing a program of Wagner, the overture to Tannhäuser, the world premiere of a CSO commission, Transfigure to Grace by Jesse Montgomery, and Rachmaninoff's Symphony No. 2. Here are Philip Husher's program notes on Jesse Montgomery's Transfigure to Grace, a suite for orchestra lasting about 15 minutes. They say our people were born on the water. These are the words of Nicole Hannah-Jones, who won a Pulitzer Prize for her writing on the 1619 Project, which aims to reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of our national narrative. Hannah Jones' line is, in a sense, where Jesse Montgomery's new orchestral work, Transfigure to Grace, began. Transfigure to Grace started life as Passage, a chamber music score designed to be danced by the Dance Theater of Harlem to commemorate the 400th anniversary of the arrival of enslaved Africans on our shores. In August 1619, Hannah Jones writes, just 12 years after the English settled Jamestown, Virginia, one year before the Puritans landed at Plymouth Rock, and some 157 years before the English colonists even decided they wanted to form their own country, the Jamestown colonists bought 20 to 30 enslaved Africans from English pirates. Those men and women who came ashore on that August day were the beginning of American slavery. In the end, nearly two million did not survive the journey across the Atlantic known as the Middle Passage. For Montgomery, water was the source material for passage. All of the mystery, all of the struggle, the movement, the unknowing lives in that imagery, she wrote at the time, for me, that water is the story. Passage was first performed and danced in May 2019 in Norfolk, Virginia. The premiere came a full year before the murder of George Floyd and the transformative conversations on race that followed. The ideas that had generated Passage continued to stir Montgomery's thinking. Divided, a concerto for cello and orchestra from 2020, was an immediate response to the social and political unrest of the time, specifically the sense of helplessness that people seem to feel amidst a world that seems to be in constant crisis, whether it's over racial injustice, sexual or religious discrimination, greed and poverty, or climate. Last year, she returned to Passage, originally scored for flute, clarinet, horn, and string quintet, and rewrote it for full orchestra. Montgomery, an accomplished violinist, had played in the premiere of the chamber version, which was conducted by Tanya Leon. And now she has reimagined the work entirely as Transfigure to Grace, a suite for orchestra inspired by themes from Passage for Ricardo Muti and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, which she serves as our Mead composer in residence. Montgomery recently moved to Chicago, where she is a leading voice in the city's vibrant new music scene. Montgomery's art is firmly set in the present, which is commonplace in theater or fiction today, but stands out in the world of classical music, which has for so long lived largely in the European past. In March, the Chicago Symphony played Banner, Montgomery's signature tribute to the 200th anniversary of the Star-Spangled Banner, which addresses the question, what does an anthem for the 21st century sound like in today's multicultural environment?
Coincident Dances, which the orchestra performed in October 2021, is a kind of snapshot of musical life today, a fusion of different musics, English consort, samba, mbira dance, music from Ghana, swing, techno. It captures what Montgomery describes as the multicultural oral palette one hears even in a short walk through a New York City neighborhood. A native of the Lower East Side of New York City, Montgomery started violin lessons at the Third Street Music School Settlement and now holds degrees from the Juilliard School in violin and New York University, a master's in composition for film and multimedia, and is completing her doctorate from Princeton University. In 2020, Montgomery was one of three black composers named to the Metropolitan Opera Lincoln Center Theater New Works Commissioning Program. She was named the Chicago Symphony's Mead Composer-in-Residence in 2021. She's the 10th composer and the 6th woman to hold the post over the past 30 years. Transfigure to Grace is the second of three works she has been commissioned to write for the orchestra. Ricardo Muti conducted the first Hymn for Everyone in April 2022. She is Musical America's 2023 Composer of the Year, and her soul force is included on the 2023 Grammy Award-winning recording by the New York Youth Symphony. Despite Montgomery's currency in the music world today and the bracing topicality of her compositions, it is unfair and limiting to view her work purely as a snapshot of today's cultural climate. The eclectic, embracing style of her output points toward a new kind of musical language in the future. And as a work like her newest orchestral score, Transfigure to Grace, demonstrates, her music is always governed by a keen awareness of our deep past. As she has said, we have to take into account that we are carrying a history inside of our beings and in the work that we do. And here are words by Jessie Montgomery herself on Transfigure to Grace. In 2019, I composed a work for ballet in collaboration with the Dance Theater of Harlem and the Virginia Arts Festival to commemorate the 1619 Project, which acknowledged the arrival of the first enslaved Africans brought to the United States. In the years that followed, significant movements in my own life and in society at large reminded me of the necessity of that commemoration and the importance of exploring this music further. As a result, elements of that composition have since flowed through other pieces I've written, incorporating themes of self-reflection and the natural world, perhaps as a way to regain a connection to self and purpose. This episodic suite recalls some of the essential themes of water and transformation from the ballet, with the French horn playing a primary role as it leads the major transitions between sections of the suite. The music begins with vivid imagery of water evolving into a dynamic surge. It is meant to evoke an unfinished chapter in our journey toward equality and grace of humankind. Words by Jesse Montgomery and program notes by Philip Husher on Montgomery's Transfigure to Grace. And now on to Rachmaninoff's Symphony No. 2, a work lasting about 56 minutes. It's astonishing that Rachmaninoff ever wrote a second symphony. He was so shattered by the disastrous, ill-received premiere of his first symphony in 1897, the most agonizing hour of my life, as he later put it, that for the next three years, he suffered from chronic depression and struggled day after day with a composer's worst fear, the inability to write a page of music worth saving. 
sketches for a new symphony were abandoned, and work on an opera, Francesca da Rimini, was shelved. Rachmaninoff visited Leo Tolstoy, hoping that contact with the great larger-than-life novelist would stimulate his creativity, but their conversations discouraged him even more. Finally, at his friend's insistence, in 1900, he went to see Dr. Nikolai Dahl, a psychiatrist noted for treating alcoholism through hypnosis. Dahl was also an amateur violinist and a great music lover. After four months of Dahl's hypnosis, you will work with great facility, was one of the doctor's often repeated leitmotifs. Rachmaninoff suddenly recovered. He not only began to compose again and with great facility, but he also soon finished the score that became his most popular work, the second piano concerto, which he dedicated to Dahl. Rachmaninoff played the piano solo at the triumphant premiere of the concerto in 1901, proving to the public that he had left his difficulties behind with the old century. The writing block had been overcome, but if the piano concerto marked the turning point, it was his second symphony that proved his ultimate victory as well as his vindication. After the success of the concerto, Rachmaninoff returned to composition on a regular basis, although he still made time for concert appearances both as pianist and as conductor, a new role he had taken up during his creative crisis. He now wrote steadily piano pieces, songs, a cello sonata, and two operas, including the shelved Francesca da Rimini. By the fall of 1906, Rachmaninoff was such a celebrity in his native land that in order to escape the public eye, he moved with his wife and infant daughter to Dresden, chosen with no more reason than the memory of a fine performance of Die Meistersinger that he had attended there. He also liked being near Leipzig, the home of his favorite conductor, Arthur Nikisch, and the celebrated Gewandhaus Orchestra. In Dresden, where he once again became a full-time composer, Rachmaninoff at last began to sketch a new symphony with sudden difficulty and in total secrecy. Obviously, he had not banished the painful memories of his first. Finally, in February 1907, when word of his newest project leaked out in the German press, he confessed to a friend, I have composed a symphony, it's true. I finished it a month ago and immediately put it aside. It was a severe worry to me, and I am not going to think about it anymore. But by the summer, he was back at work, polishing the symphony for its public unveiling. Rachmaninoff conducted the work at the St. Petersburg premiere in January 1908 with great reassuring success. The symphony won the Glinka Prize of 1,000 rubles that year and quickly made the rounds of the major orchestras of the world. It was performed in Chicago for the first time in 1911. But Rachmaninoff's vindication was a qualified one, because wherever the symphony was performed, except under the composer's own baton, it was so extensively cut that this almost hour-long symphony was sometimes reduced to a mere 45 minutes. Few other major works of orchestral music, including Bruckner's most misunderstood symphonies, were regularly presented to the public in such a savagely butchered state. 
These traditional cuts, the New York Philharmonic has kept a list of 29 cuts supposedly approved by the composer, range from tiny but still disfiguring snips, a measure or two of introductory accompaniment, for example, to major surgery, such as the removal of the main theme from the recapitulation of the adagio. The true stature of Rachmaninoff's second symphony was largely unsuspected. Ironically, a score that was routinely cut because its material was considered too insubstantial to sustain its length ended up sounding even more inconsequential, with its balance skewed and its forward sweep blunted. Only in recent years, when conductors have begun to play the piece in its entirety, has Rachmaninoff's true achievement as a composer been revealed. At these performances, Yalp van Sweden conducts the symphony uncut. Throughout Rachmaninoff's life, it was fashionable, if not in fact honorable, in progressive music circles to disparage his music. Rachmaninoff had always worried that by splitting his time between playing the piano, conducting, and composing, he had spread himself too thin. I have chased three hairs, he once said. Can I be certain that I have captured one? For many years, Rachmaninoff's stature as a pianist was undisputed. He regularly performed with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra beginning in 1909 when he played his second piano concerto here during his first American tour. He appeared with the orchestra for the last time in 1943, just six weeks before his death, as the soloist in Beethoven's first piano concerto and his own Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini. But by the time of his death in 1943, he had been written off as an old-fashioned composer, hopelessly sentimental, out of touch, and irrelevant. As Virgil Thompson told the young playwright Edward Albee in 1948, it is really extraordinary, after all, that a composer so famous should have enjoyed so little esteem of his fellow composers. Rachmaninoff's great Russian contemporary, Igor Stravinsky, for example, never could stomach the music or the man, even when they were neighbors in Los Angeles. A six-foot scowl was his summation of his famously grim-faced colleague. The sacrosanct Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians in its fifth edition concluded its dismal appraisal of his output. The enormous popular success some few of Rachmaninoff's works had in his lifetime is not likely to last, and musicians never regarded it with much favor. But in the past few years, his star has been on the rise. Now, as Rachmaninoff always hoped, it is his music and not his piano playing that keeps his name alive. Even Rachmaninoff eventually admitted that his first symphony was in fact a weak, childish, strained, and bombastic work. Words no more sympathetic than those of Cesar Cui's devastating opening night review. Cui suggested that Rachmaninoff's music sprang straight from a conservatory in hell. The new symphony proves how seriously Rachmaninoff took the challenges of the form the second time around. The first movement is quite long, but it only demonstrates Rachmaninoff's command of extended paragraphs and his mastery of carefully controlled suspense. As a conscious effort to unify the entire work, Rachmaninoff begins quietly and slowly with a low-string motto theme that reappears already disguised as early as the main violin melody that takes over once the tempo picks up. 
The second movement is a very lively, brilliantly orchestrated scherzo that unexpectedly makes way for a broad, lyrical melody of characteristic lushness. The trio, midsection, begins with a fugue launched by the second violins. After the return of the scherzo, Rachmaninoff introduces the same dies irae chant melody that he also cites in his Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini and the Isle of the Dead. The adagio opens with a lovely, sighing violin gesture that would sustain an entire movement for many a romantic composer that Rachmaninoff quickly pushes aside for a generous, long-breathed clarinet melody. It unfolds slowly, circling but never repeating itself for some 22 measures. At the end, the clarinet and the violins exchange roles. The finale begins with festive dancing music, continues with a big theme destined to return triumphantly at the end, and even stops for just six measures to reconsider the melody from the slow movement. The development section crests with an astonishing passage of descending scales, cascading at different speeds and from different heights, like the clangorous pealing of bells. And the big melody, one of Rachmaninoff's finest, does not disappoint, but returns in octaves to sweep in the final cadences. Program notes by Philip Pusher on Rachmaninoff's Symphony No. 2. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening. 